<clears throat> so I have a a friend that I will leave unnamed, and they're not anybody from around here. They're actually they live a, a long ways away now, but they've never lived around here, so you don't have to try and guess who this person is or anything like that. So just hear the story. Um, his name is John. John grew up in a really abusive home, in a quote-unquote Christian home. And he was treated harshly. He and his brother, he had a younger brother. He regularly took the heat for his younger brother because he wanted to protect his younger brother. He had an extremely abusive dad. I could share some specific stories with you. And by the way, he has given me permission to share his journey a little bit with you. And I've, maybe some of you have heard me talk about him before. Um, but when he was nine, I believe, he was removed from his... No, I was younger than that. He was seven or eight. He was removed from his home. He and his brother were, and they went into the foster care system. And what he experienced as a child, I'll give you one story to tell you a little bit about the kind of severe abuse that he experienced. Because it wasn't just physical. It was also emotional and spiritual abuse. Because remember, this is a Christian home. One day, and this is a story some of you have heard me tell it before. One day, his little brother went into his, their mom's kitchen and got all of his mom's knives, butter knives and every knife he could find, and brought them out to his dad's shop where he had some knife sharpening equipment. And he thought he was going to do this really nice thing for his mom and sharpen all of her knives. <laughs> he realizes this probably isn't a good idea when I don't know how far through the collection of knives he is with quote-unquote sharpening them, right? <clears throat> and he decides he's going to wrap them up in towels and stash them in, the da- in his dad's shed. And his mom, the mom comes home, discovers that there's hardly a knife in the kitchen, and inquires to dad what has happened to my knives. They inquire to the kids. The kids don't know, of course, what happened, they say. And so after some looking and digging, finally the dad came up with this towel wrapped up in, uh, these knives wrapped up in a towel. Realizes, of course, what one of his kids has done. And he goes and he grabs the two of them. And he stands them in front of the fireplace in their house, and there was a raging hot fire going in the house. And he asks which one of them did this thing. And they both denied it. It wasn't me, Daddy. It wasn't me, Daddy. And the dad said, you know, I learned this thing from Native Americans where, and this has nothing to do with Native Americans, but this is the dad's explanation. And he said, what they do is they take a piece of metal, a really hot poker stick of some sort, and they put it in a fire, get it red hot, and then they go and they put it under the tongue of somebody who they believe to be lying, and if you're telling the truth, it won't burn you. The older of the two, my friend, he chimes in, he says... I did it. After which he's taken out back and severely punished. 
That was one of the last things that happened in his household before they were removed and taken into CPS custody. And the damage that that did to him lasts to this day. For him to have somebody he trusts do something like that to him in those kind of formative years lasted forever. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, you know, I have similar stories in my life. Maybe not exactly that, but maybe you're sitting there thinking, I've I've been hurt like that. I'm carrying around emotional baggage that happened to me, things that happened to me when I was two years old, four years old, six months old. His story, unfortunately, doesn't get much better because in the foster care system, he was just kicked around, moved from place to place, never settled in anywhere. When I met this person, he was actually a drug, and counselor, drug, and, drug treatment counselor at the Union Gospel Mission. But by the time I knew him, he was in his 40s. He ran away when he was 17 from his foster care home, and he lived in downtown Seattle, primarily in one place underneath a viaduct on the freeway and spent all of his time there using drugs and alcohol to try and deal with his life from all of this hurt of being abused by his dad and neglected in the foster care system. His heart was crushed. It was calloused. It was hard. He couldn't trust anybody. Somehow, some way, God reached him, told him of the great love that he has for him, and slowly, carefully, gently massaged his heart to health. Today's text It's from Hebrews chapter 3, and it's verses 7 through 13. It's actually quoting Psalm 95, which itself is a reflection on Exodus 17, 1 through 7. I hope that makes some sense. Um, He's quoting Psalm 95, which is a reflection on Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Let me read for us the Hebrews text. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my way. So I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I've talked a lot about what our heart is, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about what it is, because not all of you have been here to hear about what your heart is, biblically speaking. Your heart is Scripture's word of choice to describe the inmost being of a person. The center of all your emotion. The place where you think. The place where you feel, or maybe not feel, 
in a place from which you ultimately act. Everything that a person does flows out of a person's heart. Everything good and everything bad, everything. Jesus says in, captured in Matthew 15, 18, everything that comes out of a person's mouth comes from the heart. If your heart is healthy, if your inmost being is healthy, if your heart is soft, your heart produces good fruit. But if a person's heart is unhealthy, if it is hard, calloused, it produces bad fruit. A heart can be in different conditions of health. I think I already said that right there, right? It can be hard and it can be soft. But it can also be in in-between states. Not super soft, but it's getting a little softer. Or it's not super hard, but it's getting a little harder. Well, hopefully not. But none of us has an entirely softened heart. None of us has an entirely healthy heart. We are all works in progress. And it can also be amazingly soft in some areas and hard in others. You've probably heard somebody say, I have a heart for X, Y, or Z. And that's great. Like, I like that. I have a heart for the homeless. I have a heart for addicts. I have a heart for single moms. I have a heart for those who have lost children. I have a heart for single dads. I have a heart for single people. That's all cool, right? At the end of the day, I think God wants us to have a heart. Have a soft heart. Not just toward some people, but toward all people. So a hard heart is when one's inmost being has become closed off to God's will and purpose. It can't produce good fruit because it's not interested in God's purposes and God's will and God's desires. It does not surrender. It's inflexible. It's impenetrable. It's unforgiving. It does not trust God. A hard heart is obstinate, stubborn, unfeeling, calloused, and jaded. If you ever find yourself easily angered, it might be a place where your heart needs some massaging, <laughs> some softening. It might be a place where it's hurt. A hard heart is a heart that does not know God. At least not in that spot. Maybe it's you have a heart for the homeless, but you can't stand little kids. Maybe that's because there's something hurt if that, on, that, on that topic, on that people group. You know the word no in Hebrew? Yada, 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 yada. <laughs> that's to know. So... You know what the word also means? Some of you, I know you, I know some of you know. <laughs> it speaks of to know intimately. And really that's the idea is that to know God is to know God intimately. So they choose a word of greatest knowing intimacy that you could ever come up with. 
It's also the word for a man knowing his wife and a wife knowing her husband. It's that intimate. A soft, tender heart knows God's ways, knows God's will. But a hard heart is one that does not know God's ways and does not revere God. A hard heart is a heart that is oftentimes led by fear. Actually, probably always, a hard heart is one that is led by fear. It's a heart that's not concerned, a hard heart is, with God and his righteousness. And I'm not just talking about how righteous God is. I'm talking about what is right in God's sight. A hard heart is not concerned with what is right in God's sight. It's not a dominant part of a hard-hearted person's decision-making process. There's little or no concern for listening to God's will and seeking His leading. There is no to little concern to ask God what His desires are because there isn't no trust. You know, belief and trust are really inseparable. You can't separate those things. You can't say that I believe and not trust when it comes to God. A hard heart grumbles and complains. Especially when God calls you to do something that's not easy. Or when God leads you in a way and things aren't seemingly working out just like you want them to. (laughs) And we grumble because we don't trust because we can't see. We want to be able to see how things are going to go. But we can't see how they're going to go and they don't seem like they're going well. Because we, and we don't trust God, so we grumble and complain. Some of the choice words. <laughs> because we again want, we want to see, but we can't see. We can't see what God is up to, so he says, trust me. Just trust me. Just trust me. I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Trust me. But a hard heart doesn't trust, so it grumbles and it complains. A hard heart is a heart of unbelief. However, and this is really important, a hard heart of unbelief is not an innermost being that never questions, doubts, or struggles in their faith. That's a wrong definition of what it means to have faith. If you think that your faith might waver because you have doubts, because you struggle, because you have questions, no. Those are active, lively parts of real faith. An unbelieving heart is a heart that a person has who has come to the point of just simply not trusting God. So much so that they're not even concerned with His purposes. And as you probably already figured out, a hard heart is often a heart that has been deeply hurt. Part of how a heart becomes hard is that it has been wounded. It could be recent wounds that are open wounds and open sores that even to mention hurt. That make a person not want to trust. It could have sores that are 
not so old that are scabbed over and make it difficult to feel, or maybe entirely unable to feel. Or it could have a level of healing, but with such thick scars that it does not feel the way healthy tissue does. I think 3.12, not the time, the verse of Hebrews, captures this idea most powerfully. Translated literally, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an unhealthy heart of unbelief. I think it's translated sometimes a sinful, sometimes an evil heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God. The word is paneros. And it is sinful. It's a good way to translate it. But I just want to make sure that we're capturing the idea fully. It is sinful in the sense that it produces sin. However, the big idea communicated is that the problem is that the heart is unhealthy. It's, it's not sin like hamartia, missing the mark. It's not talking about a specific act. It's talking about the condition of a person's heart. The sin then, and this is true of our lives and our hearts, sin is a byproduct of an unhealthy heart. It's a byproduct of a calloused heart. It's a byproduct of a hard heart that doesn't trust God. This is important because in order to deal with sin, you have to deal with the heart. You can't just deal with the symptoms all day long. You can't just say, stop it. Just stop sinning. It doesn't work that way. God knows that. We have, if you will, I guess, diseased hearts. Busted hearts, broken hearts. To simply focus on the sin itself and not deal with the wounded heart is like focusing, and this is kind of gross, on the pus, from the pus on a sore, if you had a sore on your leg. It would just be like, oh, let's dab the pus off. As if that's going to help the, 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 the wound heal. It's infected. You need something more than this little napkin to wipe the pus off of the sore on your leg. We need something more than that to deal with the sin in our hearts. And somebody to just say, here, wipe it off with a tissue. We need a a deep healing. We have a, a spiritual disease. Our hearts are deeply wounded. I want to look for a second at the text that Psalm 95 is reflecting on. It's actually coming up here pretty soon in Thursday night's Bible study. It's Exodus. I love the way that happens all the time. It's crazy. It's Exodus 17, 1 through 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? 
Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why do you bring us out of Egypt to make us our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Quarreling and testing. That's pretty bad when your actions bring somebody to rename the place where you're at. Right? That's pretty bad. It's really an interesting account because they were thirsty, right? It seems like a legitimate request. And in many ways, it is a legitimate request. Like, it's okay, I would like to say, that if a person is thirsty, to ask the person who's leading you to provide water. But of course, the problem isn't asking for water. It's the way they asked. It's the way they asked for water. The problem was in their hearts. The attitude that they displayed in asking for water. Give us water to drink! They quarreled and tested. Stop and think about this for a minute. If you're familiar with where we are in Exodus, in by 17, They had experienced God's miracles over and over and over again. But still they quarreled and tested. So they had experienced God's miracles of delivering them from Egypt. Ten plagues. They experienced the pillar of fire by night and cloud during the day to lead them. They experienced the Red Sea parting and nearly a million people crossing on dry land. And if that's not enough, then they experienced the sea closing back up and destroying their enemies. And then just a chapter earlier, chapter 16, they're grumbling. Imagine that, right? They're still grumbling. We're hungry. You brought us out here in the middle of the desert to die. We want some food to eat. And God provides it for them. Manna. What is it? That's what it means. What is it? Comes down. That's what manna means, by the way. What is it? I don't know what to name it. We're just going to call it, what is it? (laughs) Hey, you got some what is it? Nope, I ate all my what is it. (laughs) Now it's a what was it. (laughs) Don't think you want it anymore. (laughs) And quail. They experience God's miraculous provisions. But they still test God, quarrel, argue. They can't see what's going on. They can't see where they're going, and they don't want to 
trust that God is going to take care of them. So they couldn't go to Moses and say, hey, you know what? I know God can do this thing. It's, I mean, he provided quail and he provided manna. I mean, we don't know what it is yet, but do you think that you could go and ask God for some water? Because we're pretty thirsty and we trust that he can do this. They don't do that. Did you bring us to the middle of the desert to die? Let's go back to Egypt. At least there we had water to drink. They quarrel. They test all the way to the point of questioning because they're thirsty, apparently, if God is even with them. Their hearts were hard. Why? Why, despite all of those experiences of God's miraculous powers, why were their hearts still so hard? Why were their inmost beings so untrusting, so turned away, so astray? Why were their hearts so hardened? 3.13. Sin's deceitfulness. Sin's deceitfulness hardens one's heart. Certainly, when it comes to sin's deceitfulness, we experience a hardening of our hearts through our own sinful behaviors. We choose to do things that are not in keeping with God because we don't trust Him, and our hearts get harder still. But it's not just our own sin. It's also the sin that people have committed against us. The hearts of the Israelites were unhealthy when they left Egypt. That's where their health, unhealthy hearts started. They had spent 430 years waiting, wondering, longing, maybe even crying out. They experienced 430 years. Now, not obviously every one of them, because each of those guys wasn't 430 years old. But they experienced 430 years of Egypt lording power over them. Of wounding their hearts. Of creating in them a heart of distrust for people that were leading them. The scars created by that hurt and betrayal run deep. The most famous person in scripture for a hard heart is... Pharaoh, he himself had a hard, untrusting heart, a heart that would not let go, would not relent, would not submit to God's will. He was the one that taught the Hebrew people that leaders can't be trusted. The Hebrews were conditioned not to trust their leaders because of the sin their leaders committed. And it made following Moses and following Yahweh very difficult. The Israelites believed Moses and Yahweh were untrustworthy because that's the only experience of leadership that they ever had. 
They believed that he would abandon them, mistreat them, beat them up, much like the dictator Pharaoh. My friend, the most difficult thing that he went through was learning to trust anybody again because he had never experienced anybody in his life that was trustworthy. His dad wasn't trustworthy. His mom wasn't trustworthy. The foster care system wasn't trustworthy. He hadn't met a single adult that was trustworthy. He had an awful lot of healing that had to happen in his heart to even begin to trust God. To even begin to trust what anybody else would tell them about God. I think sometimes when we read about the Hebrew people wandering through the desert, maybe we should be a little easier on them ourselves, recognizing that we aren't so different. You know, it strikes me too that if the story was just to end there when it came to God revealing his character, we might be really afraid too. Just think about it for a second. What have they experienced? What had the Hebrew people at that point in their existence experienced? They'd experienced God's wrathful deliverance of them from the hands of the Egyptians. The devouring of the Egyptians as they chased them into the Red Sea. Provision along the way, but only after 430 years worth of a dictator leading them. There's a lot praise God, that he reveals about his character to us that allows us to trust him. It allows us to have our hearts softened where he proves to us over and over and time and time again that he does love us, that he does care about us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Have you ever heard the phrase that You emulate what you hate. It's it's true. I don't want to make some kind of blanket statement, and it needs to be qualified, I suppose, a little bit. But if you hate something out of your point of woundedness and haven't allowed God to, to heal you, that kind of hate, you're probably doomed to just repeat that behavior yourself. At the end of the day, in order for any of us to heal, in order for my friend to heal, he had to forgive. He had to recognize that he could no longer meander his way through life not trusting anybody. He had to realize that he had to stop blaming the foster care system that he had to stop blaming his parents for his brokenness. That he had to take ownership of it. That he had to say, I'm going to let God heal me. I'm going to take responsibility for my actions. Yeah, maybe people contributed to the brokenness of my heart, 
But I have to take responsibility for my actions from that wounded heart from here on out because I have a healer that has said, I will heal you. I will change your heart. I will give you a heart of flesh, taking away your heart of stone. He had to come to the point of trusting God enough to do that. If we simply live our entire lives blaming our misgivings, our bad behaviors, our sinfulness on other people, we will never heal. Never. We must take responsibility for our own actions. We are all in process. Every single one of us. Some of you hate that word, a process. It'd be nice if God just surgically removed our hard hearts and gave us instantaneously soft ones. We wouldn't even know who we were, probably. (laughs) We're in a process. We're in a process. We're in a process of having our hearts softened if we take ownership and if we give God access. So how does that heart become soft? First of all, God has to lead that process. He has to. He has to be the one that does the miraculous work in us, transforming us. We must be willing to participate in it. We have to choose to stop the madness, as I have it written in my notes, or maybe stop the insanity, right? What is the definition of insanity according to some? Right. So maybe instead of just trying to white knuckle it through not doing something that's wrong, maybe the different way is to allow God to heal that heart that produces bad fruit. Knowing God. Have anybody in here ever read the J.I. Packer book called Knowing God? Or Henry Blackaby, I think the same title, Knowing God. Experiencing God as a Blackaby. Knowing God as a Packer. I'd recommend them. They're just informational. Information doesn't necessarily transform your heart. But it's a start. Knowledge can permeate from our minds to our hearts. Knowing God. Knowing God is different than Pharaoh. Knowing God is trustworthy. We must seek to know God. If a hard heart does not know God, and a soft heart knows God. A hard heart does not know God and is Not knowing God leads to a harder heart still. So a tender, soft heart knows God, and knowing God makes a heart softer still. He reconditions us. He renews our minds. We have to give God a chance. That might be point number one. Give God a chance. You've got a chance to heal you. 
Give God a chance to transform you. Just give God a chance. Just slow down taking matters into your own hands and see what God can do. Instead of feeling panicked because something hasn't gone right, let God work. Let God steer. Just because you've come to a point in your life maybe where you don't have the water that you so long for and so need, instead of crying out to God or some other leader, give us some water to drink, we're going to die. God left us. You've got a chance. And for what it's worth, when we give God a chance, he doesn't just fix all of our problems. This might be the problem that the Israelites had. They just thought Yahweh was going to fix all of their problems. God does not just fix all of our problems. If we give God a chance, we see that what God does is gives us peace amidst the storms of life. Because we know God is with us. That's what God promises us. That he's with us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I can see some of you already going there. God doesn't say we won't have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He just simply says he will be with us as we walk through it. I'm struck by the closing of this section in Hebrews. That part of what God says is a remedy for a hard heart, or at least keeping a heart from becoming hard, is placed in the hands of one another. That's an awful big responsibility, seems to me. It says in 3.13 at the end, encourage one another daily. That's what he says. Listen. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily. As long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. How to not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness? Encourage one another daily. Courage. Courage to build up, to edify. Comes in really tons of forms. Sometimes it comes from some hard words, never harsh words. Some people say harsh words make a heart soft. I don't agree with that at all. But hard words might make a heart soft. Challenging words, words that are just true, spoken in love. This encouragement, this building up comes in, again, many forms. Sometimes hard words, sometimes also tender words. Hosea 2.14, speaking of Israel's unfaithfulness, God says, therefore I'm not going, I, for, therefore I'm not going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. And in the transitional point in Isaiah, speaking to a stiff-necked, obstinate, hard-hearted people, God says, Comfort, comfort my people. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord, Lord's hand double for her sins. Speak tenderly. In each of these situations, hard words are followed by tender words. Without tender words spoken to one another, the process of softening would be obstructed. So let's think about this just for a moment. Our hearts are protected. Our hearts become soft, and our hearts are kept from becoming hard. When we meet together, when we speak tender words, when we speak hard words, when we talk, when we share, when we confess, when we challenge, when we grieve together, which requires us to spend time to speak and to listen, to empathize. And it also requires us to trust. Ultimately, trust God, but also trust one another that we might be able to open our hearts up and share what goes on in there. I was talking with Holly, and I'm not going to put her on the spot too much. I was talking with Holly this week, and Holly's been on an amazing journey in her life, and she doesn't always see it, but I tell you what, anybody, (laughs) this sounds bad, (laughs) anybody that's known Holly for any period of time, I believe, can see the radical transformation and healing God has done in her heart. And as we were sitting there earlier, it was yesterday, I think, talking about this, I was like, what happens when we talk? What happens when you just share your experiences, your frustrations, whatever's going on? I'm not going to say too much, don't worry. Um, Whatever goes on, what happens when you just get it out? What happens? And I think maybe I even saw a little tear, although she's easy to cry. When she speaks those things to me, and I just don't throw it back in her face until they're, oh my goodness, I can't believe you thought that. That is horrible. Her heart becomes softer. She can begin to trust. She can begin to trust me, but ultimately she begins to trust Jesus because she knows the only reason that I am able to do that is because of Jesus. It's true. It keeps her heart from getting harder and makes it instead softer. Because she's able to share. Because she's able to trust. It's true. So, maybe there are some of you here. They're like, I want a softer heart. Find somebody. It doesn't have to be me. Find somebody that you can trust. Find somebody that you can trust that will both speak challenging words to you and hard words to you, tell you the truth, but they're going to speak tenderly to you as well. People that will receive you. People that will reflect, not Pharaoh's way, but Jesus' way. Amen.